Some words in the Bible are hard to translate. Their meaning isn't clear to us. Genesis 6 starts with one of those words. Near the beginning of the chapter, it says, quote, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. And it adds, quote, These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. End quote. Nephilim? That's a tricky word. Sometimes it's translated as giants, but it's hard to know what's right. It only shows up here and in one other place in the Bible, but it's connected to a verb that describes a violent death. This episode tells the story of the world in the days of those Nephilim. This is The Millennials, Part 2. The first few chapters of Genesis don't give us a lot of description. There aren't many adjectives. Nothing really sets the scene. In a modern story, the author pulls together details to draw you in. Genesis doesn't do much of that. At the end of the last episode, Enoch walked with God and went to heaven. We don't know what Methuselah did. I imagine him going home, back to a little farm near the gate to the Garden of Eden. But those are just my guesses. The Bible, it doesn't say. Instead, Methuselah fades into the background. And this episode isn't really about him. The spotlight instead shifts to his cousins. Now, I should be clear here and say that this episode has some speculation in it. All these episodes do. Sometimes it's my ideas, sometimes it's theories from authors of commentaries who are maybe more qualified to make guesses than I am. But either way, there's always some figuring going on because this story has a lot of gaps. The Bible only tells us a few things about Methuselah's cousins. Specifically, it tells us they were children of Lamech, Methuselah's distant uncle, and it gives us the names of four of them, three sons and a daughter. And around that same time, when Methuselah might have been headed back to his little farm, these cousins might have been reaching their prime. The first of the sons that Genesis gives us the name of is Jabel. It means wanderer. And Genesis says Ada, that's one of Lamech's wives, quote, Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. In essence, Jabel was the first nomadic shepherd, the first person to move flocks around the country looking for the best places to graze. In other words, Jabel went into business. Lamech's second son, Jubal, he followed a different path. His name might mean joyful sound. And if Jabel went into business, Jubal went into art. Genesis says he was, quote, the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe, end quote. It's hard to say what these instruments were. The scholars think it was a panpipe or a flute and maybe some sort of stringed instrument. That agrees with what we find in archaeology. In Ur, in Mesopotamia, they found harps and lyres around 4,000 years old. In ancient Egypt, they've unearthed all kinds of instruments, including drums and flutes and things with strings on them. Genesis says Jubal started that. That's two brothers. Jabal was business, Jubal was art, and then there was their half-brother, Tubal-Cain. 
and he did science and technology. Tubal Cain was Lamech's son from his second wife. Genesis describes him as, quote, the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. In other words, Tubal Cain was the first blacksmith, the first person to figure out how to work with metals. Like I said, we don't know much about these brothers, but the descriptions of what they did, it gives us a glimpse, a little window into their society and how it was changing. Remember, in the last episode, I talked about Cain building the world's first city, but that it probably wasn't much more than a stockade, a fort with walls that were set up to protect his family from wild animals or people who might be seeking revenge. By this point, though, that's ancient history. That city that started as a fort would now be something over 800 years old. That's the gap between today and the signing of the Magna Carta. And the world? It was a different place. Jabel's a good example of that. He's not hiding in a fort. He's a nomad. One commentary pointed out that Jabel, moving around with his flocks and herds, that was evidence that Cain's children weren't hiding anymore. The population was larger. They weren't afraid of what might be outside the walls. And this civilization, it wasn't just surviving. It was thriving. You can get that from Jubal. If you're struggling to grow enough food, scraping together a harvest so you don't starve, you don't have time to invent instruments and compose music. Those are luxuries. The fact that Jabel was doing those things suggests that the society he was a part of wasn't barely holding itself together. It had leisure time, time to do things that it didn't have to do. And music is, in other cultures, considered part of the growth of civilization. In Egyptian mythology, after creation, the chaos went away and order appeared only when music arrived. Jubal, with his flutes and his harps, he's evidence that this civilization was beginning to organize. And then you have Tubal Cain, who takes the idea even further, because he's a specialist. He spent his time studying rocks and minerals and figuring out how to heat them up and melt them together to make tools out of bronze and iron. You only have time to do that when someone else is growing your food and getting your water, when someone else is taking care of your survival. Business, art, science, these achievements are examples of how society had changed since Cain started it. They show us that people were intelligent. Genesis isn't describing cavemen here. It's describing inventors and innovators and entrepreneurs. It's saying that people were smart. And that's a bit of a problem. The idea that people in the ancient past were intelligent and inventive, that flies in the face of the standard theory of history. Today, we look at the past and we think humans were less intelligent, less inventive than we are today. Take the theory of the Three Ages, the Stone Age, Bronze Age, and Iron Age, as an example. The theory behind those labels says people started with stone tools because they were the simplest ones to make, and it was all they could figure out. That's what made up the Stone Age. Over hundreds or thousands of years, they gradually learned to mix copper, which can be found in the ground in a relatively pure state, with tin, and they made bronze, and then the Bronze Age started. The timeline varies some, but after working with bronze for a while, around 1000 BC in Greece, iron came into vogue and the Iron Age began. That's the three-age system. An early version of the idea goes back to Lucretius, a Roman author from the first century. But the concept only became popular because of the attic of a church in Denmark. 
In the beginning of the 1800s, the government of Denmark had a collection of artifacts, tools, papers, weapons, and it stored them away in the top of the Trinitatis Church in Copenhagen. In 1816, they decided they wanted to put them on display, and they picked C.J. Thompson, the son of a rich merchant from the city who was interested in archaeology. They picked him to sort through and organize their collection. As the story goes, when Thompson came to the attic of the church, it was chaos. You can imagine boxes and papers and wooden chests piled wherever they had space. It was a mess, so Thompson started sorting. He put things in groups based on what they were made from. Household goods, ornaments, human remains, and, as you might have guessed by this point, he collected together the stone tools, the bronze weapons and things, and the iron artifacts. And that's how the museum opened in 1819. These groups, stone, iron, bronze, they were originally a way to show off the collection. But then Thompson published a book about his system in 1836. It was translated into English in 1848. And from there, the theory became the basis for archaeology in Europe. People think ancient humans were primitive and ignorant and started with stone tools. And it's true, the idea might go back to Roman times, but there's another version that's even older. About 800 years before Lucretius, the Greek author Hesiod said the world was divided into five ages. Working backward, he said they were iron, heroic, bronze, silver, and gold. In his history, the world began with gold, with what you might call a true golden age. But that idea isn't popular today. It suggests human history isn't necessarily the story of progress. And the modern version gets rid of that memory of gold. And instead, we think of the past as the Stone Age. Genesis records it differently. It says people worked with iron right here at the beginning of history. It says that people in the past weren't simpletons. And in some sense, archaeologists are starting to realize that ancient humans were a lot smarter than we've given them credit for. Scientists used to assume that instruments started as bones or shells or gourds that could only play one note, and that they slowly developed into more complex designs. But now, in China, they've found flutes that are thousands of years old that have seven finger holes. It shows us that humans, even long ago, cared about tone and pitch, and that they figured out ways to produce the sounds that they wanted to hear. If you get past the modern bias, past the stories about cavemen, you can see that these people in this part of history weren't ignorant. They were refined and capable. That's what Genesis is talking about when it describes these three brothers. It's recalling what could have been Earth's golden age. Just look at what you have here. Jabel comes across as this regular shepherd, but his operation may have been a lot more than that. In this verse, the word used for cattle literally means possession. It's a reference to wealth, because in this part of history, that's what livestock was. In Egypt, just owning cattle was a sign that you were very rich. In other places in the Bible, people measured their wealth by counting how many donkeys or sheep or camels they had. We might not see it this way today, but that connection between cattle and money still comes down to our own language. In English, the word capital, as in capitalist, comes from the same ancient root word as cattle. Jabel wasn't just a shepherd, he was a rich one. 
You can imagine someone who made a fortune buying and selling and trading animals. Someone famous, someone who was a household name. And if you extend this idea to the other brothers, you start to see Jubal as a bit of a da Vinci or a Michelangelo. And Tubal Cain, who comes across as the scientist and engineer, he's part Thomas Edison, part Henry Ford. And these brothers, this trio of titans, they were all living and working at the same time. They were all there together as the heart of this dynamic period in history when new ideas and inventions might have been everywhere. When I think about that world, I think back to the time when the Industrial Revolution really got going. When all these ideas came together and technology and society started shifting, started shifting fast. For most of human history, the quickest way to travel was probably by horse on land or by sailing in a ship on the ocean. But in 1698, with the first steam engine, that started to change. And within 150 years, steam engines were everywhere. You had railroad lines, you had paddle wheels, you had steam-powered ocean liners. For most of history, sending a long-distance message involved smoke signals or lights or flags or pigeons or the sound of drums. If the message was important enough, maybe you had a dedicated messenger you could send. But most people probably had to write it down and put it on the slow boat, send it on a ship or a wagon, and then wait weeks or months for a reply. And that was all true until 1844. In 1844, people figured out enough about electricity and batteries and magnetism for the first telegraph wire to go live. Suddenly, news from hundreds of miles away could be there in an instant. Just 22 years later, in 1866, they laid two working telegraph lines all the way across the floor of the Atlantic Ocean. Overnight, messages that used to take days or weeks could cross the ocean at the rate of eight words a minute. Ten years later, there's a patent for sending voices over the wire rather than just on-off signals. And by 1906, you didn't even need the wire, since, for the first time, people had figured out how to send their voice, or music, through the air using just radio waves. Can you imagine waking up and seeing those inventions come out for the first time? It'd be like living in a world of science fiction. In 1862, you read this story about a Belgian inventor who's built the world's first motorized wagon, the first car. And less than 40 years later, people aren't only driving, but they figured out how to fly. Think about living in that sort of world, in this age of discovery. And then, instead of Edison or Einstein, imagine the headlines have the names Jubal or Tubal Cain. Because that might have been the sort of world these people were living in. The sort of world that these people were leading. But that's only one part of the story. The Victorian era, with all these inventions, has a darker side. The same part of history known for the first titans of industry is also remembered for the robber barons. Start with John Jacob Astor. If you were his press agent, you would tell people he made his fortune trading animal furs and investing in New York City real estate. You'd say he became the richest man in America and left behind the Astoria Public Library and the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. You wouldn't say his business thrived by violently attacking other fur traders, selling opium in China, and bribing politicians. Go forward a few years, and there's Leland Stanford. As his press agent, you'd say he helped the Central Pacific Railroad complete the Transcontinental Railway. 
You'd say he founded Stanford University, the second highest rated engineering school in the United States. But you'd skip the part about how the funding for that railroad came from government grants Leland Stanford gave himself while he was both governor of California and the president of the railroad at the same time. And you wouldn't mention the subsidies the company got from threatening not to connect towns to the new rail line. There are others. James Fisk and Jay Gould cornered the gold market and caused the Black Friday stock market panic in 1869. Charles M. Schwab bribed the mistress of the Russian Grand Duke with a $200,000 necklace so he could get the contract to make steel for the Trans-Siberian Railroad. This corruption and oppression? This is the other side of the Victorian era. There were good industrialists, philanthropists like J.D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie, so the problem wasn't the industry, but what people did with it. And that brings me back to these three brothers, business, art, technology. These all look like good things, but there are clues suggesting that it wasn't as noble as it appears. The first bit of evidence is context. This list of achievements shows up in a story that starts with Cain murdering Abel and ends with Lamech, their father, boasting about killing someone himself. That's the first clue these descriptions aren't all about good things. And then there's the way Genesis describes them. The accomplishments it talks about are only about how to be rich or strong or how to enjoy life. There's nothing in there about God, no efforts to mend that relationship. And then there's Tubal Cain. Where Genesis says Tubal Cain was a forger of bronze and iron, that could also say hammerer or sharpener. It suggests Tubal Cain wasn't working in metal for fun. He was making weapons. A couple of episodes ago, I mentioned that the name Cain might mean spear or lance. And one commentary thought Tubal might have gotten the last part of his name because of what he did. He might have been Tubal Cain, meaning Tubal of the spear. And that fits with what Josephus says. He describes Tubal Cain as something like an expert in war. Put these clues together, and that world I had you imagine, that golden age at the start of Earth's history, that begins to look a little different, doesn't it? Tubal Cain isn't developing technology as some sort of altruist. He's probably an arms manufacturer. Now think about his brothers. Jabal kept livestock. That's a good thing. The Bible compares God to a good shepherd. We talk about church pastors, which is a reference to someone who takes care of a flock of sheep. But there are good shepherds, and there are bad ones. One commentary suggested Jabal was the first person to breed livestock specifically to get rich. He wasn't trying to bring wool clothes and cow's milk to people for their benefit. He's only looking for what's in it for himself. You can imagine him doing all those things John Jacob Astor did, threatening competitors, bribing governments. You can imagine him driving his servants like slaves. And then there's Jubal. He's making musical instruments. That's not bad. The Bible mentions people praising God with tambourines and trumpets and harps. But music also has another side. In the ancient world, instruments were used for entertainment, for rituals, for work. They were used in medicine. Ancient Egypt, they had music in parades, banquets, when people worked in the fields. And they used it for religious processions. Maybe Jubal's music wasn't just a nice soundtrack. Maybe it was there 
to draw people in. Most religions do this today. They use music as a part of their ceremonies. It can have an uncanny effect. Researchers from McGill University in Montreal, studying how the brain reacts to music, found that it responds with the same chemical it releases for love or sugar or drugs. And that's interesting because we don't need music. It doesn't serve a biological function. It doesn't supply us with anything. But our brains treat it the same way they treat the things we do need. And that gave Jubal a tool. Because, as I imagine it, he had a problem. People could always leave Cain's city. They could leave Cain's civilization and go back west to the gate to the Garden of Eden and join with those who still kept to the old religion and still worshipped God. So maybe Jubal used his music as an antidote. Something to keep them distracted, to keep them focused on pleasure. You see it later in Egyptian history. In their religion, music and dancing and the celebration of earthly pleasure, all of them came together. And let's just say the parties weren't the most modest or restrained celebrations. As I picture it, that would have been the kind of thing Jubal started. Something to keep you from thinking about the God you'd left behind. Like I said, a lot of this is speculation. It's based on context and other clues, but it's still speculation. That said, the pieces fit, don't they? Tubal Cain, the violent, Jabel, the oppressor, Jubal, the manipulator. Those titles match up pretty well with Cain the murderer and Lamech the killer, right? And that brings me back to the word I mentioned at the start of the episode. Those Nephilim. The people Genesis says were the mighty men of old, men of renown. It sounds like a good label. It makes you think of men who were brave, the risk takers. But there's another angle. Scholars think it refers to something like dictators. The reference is less hero and more gangster, not King Arthur, but Al Capone. One commentary gives a bit of the picture when it says the word should be translated violent ones. Genesis is telling us when the violent ones used to live on the earth. And remember, these weren't people here today and gone tomorrow. This wasn't a flash in the pan. In the Middle Ages, you could have a bad king, but he'd only be around for a few years, maybe 30 or 40 if he reigned a long time. Not in this part of history. Here, these dictators could live for centuries. A lot of this is best guessing. Genesis doesn't say much, but I wonder if the reason it says so little is because when the story was first written, it didn't need to explain who these people were. Everyone remembered them. You know why Michelangelo and Thomas Edison are famous. I don't need to explain it. It could have been the same way with these brothers. When Genesis was written, people probably knew their names. They probably knew the stories about them. And that makes you wonder if they show up in any stories from outside the Bible. In an earlier episode, I talked about the origins of mythology, the idea that they might have some grain of truth buried inside them. If that's true, and if Genesis is giving us the history of the world here, Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal Cain could show up in other cultures. The stories might be twisted and confused, but with the same core elements. Genesis says men lived hundreds of years, invented musical instruments, and discovered how to work with metals. Take those ideas into another culture, and you can see how they would remember these people as legends, and over time how those legends could become gods. When you look at the stories of some of these gods, the parallels pop out at you. 
For instance, when you look for shepherds like Jabal, the Mesopotamians remember and worshipped a god named Tammuz, a shepherd god known as the, quote, multiplier of pasture. And the Romans worshipped Polys, a god who protected flocks and herds. In the Bible, Jubal invented the flute and harp. In Greece, Apollo invented the harp and gave a lyre to Orpheus, who had such magical ability that even the animals, the trees, and the rocks would get up to dance. And then there's Tubal Cain. Lots of cultures have this god who was a metalsmith, who made the armor and weapons of the gods. In Greece, it was Hephaestus. It might be the same as Ta in Egypt. But in Rome, it was Vulcan. And there's an interesting thing about that one. In Hebrew, the letter B and the letter V are very similar. You get the same thing in modern Spanish, where a B sometimes makes a soft V sound. And if you do that and drop the first two letters of Tubal-Cain, it becomes Vulcane, or Vulcan, the Roman god of those who work in metals. These connections might be a coincidence. It might be chance. But the parallels are interesting, right? Tubal-Cain sharpening weapons, maybe for his father Lamech the killer, compared to Roman myths about Vulcan making thunderbolts for his father Jupiter. And then there's the gods themselves. These gods aren't noble. They behave like humans, and not even nice humans. They're cruel and jealous. They're tyrants. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, the main character is two-thirds god and one-third man. He's a hero who's tall and majestic, but he abuses the people he rules. If these myths from other cultures are remembering the same time period Genesis is talking about, they recall rulers who were powerful and intelligent, but also selfish and vengeful and violent. And you'd think these dictators would drive people away from Cain's society, wouldn't you? But there's one piece I haven't talked about. There was something drawing people in, and it has to do with the last of Lamech's children that Genesis mentions by name. I told you about the three sons. This one is the daughter. And if the brothers show up in mythology, the sister probably does too. And she may be the most famous of them all. In Babylon, she could be remembered as Ishtar. In ancient Sumer, she'd have been the goddess Inanna. The Greeks talked about Aphrodite. The Romans worshipped Venus, the wife of Vulcan. But in all these stories, the closest connection might be the Phoenicians. They worshipped a goddess named Nama. In the Bible, Lamech's daughter has the same name. It means beauty. And if the myths from Greece and Rome and Babylon are remembering this same person, they think of her as the goddess of love, the goddess of pleasure. The Bible doesn't say much about Nama. It only gives us her name. But one commentary pointed out how things had changed since the days of Eve. Eve was named the mother of all living, the mother of those who trusted in God. Nama was named for how she looked. By this point in history, character didn't matter. Appearance did. And that focus on physical attraction is what makes society start to shift. Cain's descendants might be tyrants, but they have beautiful daughters. And Genesis says, quote, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. There are a bunch of theories going back at least a couple thousand years about what Genesis means here, where it talks about the sons of God. Some say it refers to angels. Some say it means nobles or the descendants of nobles. 
The best conclusion, and the one that a lot of commentators support, is that the sons of God were the people who claimed to follow God, generally the people descended from Seth, while the daughters of Cain were those who rebelled against God, the descendants of Cain. If you take it that way, you see that up until this point in history, there were two societies, the followers of God and the rebels. But then Genesis says these daughters of Cain tipped the balance in favor of the rebels. Seth's descendants stopped caring about whether the women obeyed God or not. They stopped looking for that. It was irrelevant. The only thing that mattered was whether the women were attractive. And the way it's written, marrying any they chose, it makes one commentary say that they didn't stop with one wife. They did like Lamech and married multiple women, ignoring the system God set up in Eden. Genesis focuses on these intermarriages with Cain's children as the tipping point, the moment when abandoning God became normal. But think about the process you have to go through to get to that point. Think about where things had to start. Ever since Cain left God, there'd probably been a few people every generation who joined him, but it would have been a slow trickle. Most people didn't leave their family, their religion, their traditions, or their homes very easily. They have to be convinced. And kind of like with Eve at the tree in the garden, I wonder if it started with curiosity. Let's say you're living near Eden, Methuselah's house is down the road, the gate to the garden isn't far away, life is normal, it's routine, but then someone comes back from a trip out east, from a visit to Cain's city, his civilization. You can imagine being curious about the stories. You might not admit it, but you like the gossip, and you want to hear about the things that are going on out there in the world. At this point, you aren't thinking about leaving home and visiting for yourself. The cities are dangerous. They're known for being dirty and corrupt. You're curious, but you're not going to move. And then the persuaders arrive. Imagine one of these people, these visitors from out east, comes and does a little marketing. They try to fix the public relations problem the cities have. Sure, they say, the cities have bad parts. Sure, some people don't follow God, but things aren't all bad. And then they start talking about the good parts, the things you could get in a city that you didn't have out here in the wild. And you start to think, cities offer jobs that pay more, jobs that have fewer hours where you don't have to work as hard as you work on a farm. You start to think about how your kids could go to a better school, how they could learn art at Jubal's School of Music or Science from Tubal Cain's Institute of Technology. Maybe you think about how the healthcare in the cities is lots better than out here among the farms. And sure, the cities were dangerous, there was crime. But if you're living in the country, the wildlife is dinosaurs and pterodactyls. If that's what's outside your house at night, if those are the animals making noises in the forest when you go for a walk, Maybe it's not so hard to prefer a little more crime in the safety of a city to being by yourself in the jungle. Think how things are starting to teeter. Now you're wondering if the country is the risky choice. Maybe the city is the safe bet. As I imagine it, that's where the slide begins. And after the slide comes the peer pressure, because some people start to move. And now you have to explain why you're not moving. And when you think about it, you realize that if everyone else is going, you're not abandoning family and friends. You can all go together. And that's got to make things even easier. For a while, maybe people like Enoch stem the tide. A couple of commentaries thought the shift in society only became a general problem after Enoch went to heaven. But once he's gone, the gates are open. 
You stop thinking about Enoch's warnings. You stop thinking about the dangers, the risks of leaving. And you focus on the risks of staying. If you stay, you'll be mocked. You'll be thought of as a fanatic. You'll be isolated and ignored. If you go, there's the hope of an easier life. There's a peaceful retirement. There's safety from the wild animals. Now it's not curiosity. Now you want to go. If you wrote out all the pros and cons, staying would have all the cons. Going would have only pros. You forget about Enoch's example. You forget about the hope of a future with God. And you leave Eden behind. The whole thing could be this gradual process. It's not that you wake up one day and decide to change your beliefs and principles. It's a little at a time. Until one day, you realize those beliefs have already changed. And you join up with the people who used to be your enemies. Now, anyone who stayed behind, the Methuselahs who are left, well, they just remind you of what you've abandoned. And you hate them and what they stand for as much as anyone. Nothing reminds you more of what you've lost than the people who still hold on to it. And maybe that's what happens just before this point in the story where there's the tipping point. Without this sort of thing happening first, the sons of God, Seth's children, wouldn't have met the daughters of Cain. They wouldn't know they were attractive. First, they have to start mixing together. And then, if they're already living in the same places and interacting, it makes it easy to take the next step. And when the two sides intermarry and have kids, there's no difference between them anymore. Suddenly, two societies join forces. And for anyone who didn't go along because of the carrot, who tried to stay true to God, even though it meant hard work, wild animals, and being mocked for your religion, for anyone who didn't leave God because of the carrot, there was always the stick. I doubt that Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal Cain were above coercion and violence. And don't think Nama was the nice one. Those myths about Ishtar and Anana suggest something else. Sure, they were goddesses of love, but they were also goddesses of war, known for being violent and ambitious, known for revenge and a lust for power, known for manipulating relationships to get whatever it was that they wanted. We don't know the process everything went through. This is all how I imagine it. But we know the result. By the time Methuselah was about 850, with millions of people living in the world, and remember, that's a low number, the population could have grown to billions by this point. By the time Methuselah is 850, Genesis says, quote, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. By this point, when Methuselah is 850, almost everyone on the planet is against God. Almost everyone is selfish and cruel and violent and completely absorbed in themselves and their own desire for pleasure. And that brings up a question. If you were living during this time, if you watched Enoch go to heaven, and then, like seeing a dam burst, stood by while everyone, almost the whole world, abandoned God and allied themselves together against him, what keeps you and the last few other people faithful? How did those last few people not abandon God? I think about that, and I wonder if the answer to how Methuselah and anyone else stayed faithful was by doing the opposite of what the crowd did. If you abandoned God by focusing on pleasure or moving away from the gate and that flaming spirit of God that reminds you of him all the time, you keep the faith by holding on to those things. You stay near the gate. You focus on the evidence, on the stories from Adam, on the stories about Enoch. People could only ignore God 
by forgetting the evidence. And I think Methuselah and his little band stayed faithful by remembering it. That's my guess, but like I said at the start of this episode, this story wasn't really about Methuselah. It was about everything else that was going on in the world while he was alive. Methuselah probably lived on the fringes. He may have visited the cities, he may have been a missionary, trying to convince people to come back to God, but always as an outsider. During this whole time period, Methuselah wasn't the main character. He was always there, just in the background. He makes me think of someone from a book I listened to a few months ago. I like audiobooks, as you might imagine, and this book was about Stephen Hopkins, a man in the late 16th, early 17th century, who somehow ended up as a supporting character in a bunch of famous places. He was in a shipwreck that might have inspired Shakespeare's play The Tempest. He was in Jamestown and may have taken the same boat back to England with Pocahontas and James Rolfe. He signed the Mayflower Compact and was one of the first settlers in the new Plymouth colony. And he probably hosted Squanto in his house and took part in the first Thanksgiving. Stephen Hopkins was in all these famous places, but not as the most important person in the room, as a supporting character. I think of Methuselah a little like that. He was always around, but in the background. Instead, the stories are about Adam, or Enoch, or Cain's descendants. And then, for the last 120 years of his life, when, as Genesis says, men's thoughts were only evil continually, the spotlight shifts one more time, not to Methuselah, but to his grandson Noah, a man who was about to build the most famous boat in world history. In the last episode, I said that Methuselah's grandson would be building a boat. Well, that sort of foreshadowing is what happens when I haven't pre-written all the episodes before releasing them. The boat wasn't in part two, but it's up next, when the story isn't so much about the people who abandoned God, but the few who stayed faithful at any cost. Until then, if you want to dig into any of the details I mentioned in this episode, WiderBible.com has articles, references, links, and show notes to get you started. The website also has a place to ask questions and a page where you can subscribe if you want to know when something new comes out. I'm Adam Schull. Thanks for listening.